Our next speaker is Tad R. Collister. He was serving in the presidency of the 70 and is a member of the Second Quorum of the 70 when he was called as Sunday School General President. He has served in a number of church callings, including full-time missionary in the Eastern Atlantic States missions, bishop, stake president, regional representative, mission president, and Area 70. There's a lot more here on his background, but we'd like to welcome Elder Collister. Well, it's an honor uh, to be here with you today. I'm not really an academic expert on the Book of Mormon, like many of those who've made presentations or who are just in the audience. But I do have an intellectual and spiritual testimony of its truthfulness. And I do believe that the Book of Mormon, combined with the Spirit, is the greatest witness we have of the truthfulness of this church. From an evidentiary standpoint, it is our spiritual smoking gun our incontrovertible evidence for the honest in heart. While the following points I make are not necessarily new or comprehensive in scope, I believe that they all work together in a cumulative fashion to act as a witness of the truth of the Book of Mormon. Somewhere, somehow, the critics must answer that question, how did the Book of Mormon come forth? Was it man-made? is claimed by them, or was it truly divinely inspired? The initial argument, if I understand it, of the critics was that Joseph Smith could just not have written the Book of Mormon. It was too complex. This was based on the premise in the early days that he was only 23 years of age, he was unlearned, uneducated, he was in essence, as some said, but a plowboy, and thus incapable of writing it. Therefore, someone far more intelligent and skilled than he must have been the author. Well, one of the proposed candidates, as you know, was Sidney Rigdon. Al, after all, he was a minister, a theologian, and an orator. Certainly a likely prospect. In order to understand the supreme irony of this argument, however, one needs to remember that the Book of Mormon was published in March of 1830. The church was organized in April of 1830, and then in October of 1830, about six months after the church was organized, Party P. Pratt preaches the gospel for the first time to whom, of all people, Sidney Rigdon, his former minister, and bears testimony to him of the truth of the Book of Mormon. In other words, Sidney Rigdon was converted by the very book he was supposed to have written. Nancy Rigdon Ellis, the daughter of Sidney and age seven at the time, would later write the following. I saw them hand my father the book, meaning the Book of Mormon, and I am as positive as can be that he never saw it before. He read it and examined it for about an hour and then threw it down and said he did not believe a word in it. Of course, he later did believe it and joined the church. Emma Smith wrote, no acquaintance was formed between Sidney Rigdon and the Smith family till after the church was organized, which of course was after the Book of Mormon had already been published. These are but a few of the historical evidences that Sidney Rigdon never came in contact with the Book of Mormon until after it was published. Accordingly, this argument carries little weight today. 
Another candidate who supposedly wrote the Book of Mormon was Oliver Cowdery. After all, he was well-educated, a school teacher, and later became an attorney. The critics must have forgotten, however, that he was the self-admitted scribe to Joseph Smith. He wrote, quote, I wrote with my own pen the entire Book of Mormon, save a few pages, as it fell from the lips of the prophet Joseph as he translated it. By the gift and power of God, that book is true. In addition, Oliver was true to his testimony to the end as one of the three witnesses, that he saw the angel and the gold plates from which the Book of Mormon was translated by Joseph Smith, not written by any man, let alone him. Also, certain others have acknowledged that for brief periods, they acted as scribes to Joseph Smith as he translated the Book of Mormon. If Oliver wrote the book, why these scribes for Joseph? Needless to say, this argument was on borrowed time. With a certain demise of the foregoing arguments, a new argument arose. Joseph Smith, as you know, it was claimed that he copied the Book of Mormon initially from the Solomon Spalding Manuscript, an unpublished account written by a minister named Solomon Spalding in 1812. It is a fictional account of ancient Romans sailing for England who were blown off course and landed in America. The easy response to this argument of plagiarism was just compare the two books and decide but yourself. But ever so conveniently, the critics claimed the manuscript was lost. In 1884, however, the manuscript was found in the historical papers of Eber Howe, one of the very critics who claimed the manuscript had been lost for comparison's sakes. Then L.L. Rice and James Fairchild, president of Oberlin College, neither members of the church, knowing of the plagiarism argument, compared the manuscript with the Book of Mormon and wrote, we compared it with the Book of Mormon and could detect no resemblance between the two, in general or in detail. Thus, another explanation of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon was discredited. The next argument, however, was even more bizarre. It was that Joseph Smith suffered from a mental disorder and therefore possessed the skills to write the Book of Mormon. Harry Beardsley, a Chicago journalist, wrote, The Book of Mormon is a product of a mind characterized by the symptoms of the most prevalent of mental diseases of adolescence, dementia praecox, sometimes referred to as schizophrenia. The problem with that argument is there exists no credible evidence that Joseph Smith had a mental disorder, and even if he had, no evidence that such a disorder magically bestows upon an untrained writer the ability to become a skilled writer. As a side note, it's of interest to me that when these and other arguments of the critics are confronted, they often respond, oh, those are old arguments. Translated, that means we don't want to talk about them anymore because we don't want to acknowledge that those arguments made by fellow critics have now been proven to be totally defective. So let's now talk about the current argument being made by critics, namely, that Joseph Smith was a creative genius who read numerous books and copied ideas and stories from them, such as View the Hebrews and the Late War Between the United States and Great Britain, as referred to by Scott Gordon earlier.
This is a total flip-flop, though, 180-degree reversal from the original argument that Joseph Smith was incapable, just too ignorant, to write such a book. Now, all of a sudden, he is a skilled, creative writer with genius intellect. What are the counter-arguments to this assertion by the critics? One, is there any concrete historical evidence proving that Joseph Smith read any of these alleged books before the Book of Mormon was translated? None that I'm aware of. More specific, is there a single reference, just one, in Joseph Smith's journals or letters suggesting that he might have read or had conversations concerning any of these historical resources or books before translating the Book of Mormon? No. Did Emma Smith, who was married to Joseph, ever comment that he referred to any of these books before the Book of Mormon was translated? Or that he visited any of the libraries where these books supposedly might have been located? No. Are there any independent sources who claim that Joseph discussed any of these books at any time with them before the Book of Mormon was translated? No. Is there any record that Joseph Smith had any of these books or related notes present when he translated the Book of Mormon? No, in fact, Emma was a first-hand witness of this, asked in an interview if Joseph read from any books or notes while dictating. She replied, as you probably know, he had neither manuscript nor book to read from. If he had had anything of the kind, he could not have concealed it from me. Is there any evidence Joseph was a good writer at age 23 and thus could be the author of the Book of Mormon? No. To the contrary, Emma noted, Joseph Smith as a young man can neither write nor dictate a coherent and well-worded letter, let alone dictate a book like the Book of Mormon. That is staggering when you think about it. To claim that Joseph Smith, who cannot write a coherent letter, wrote the Book of Mormon in a single dictation draft in approximately 65 working days with only minor changes, most grammatical. When I finished a book I recently wrote entitled A Case for the Book of Mormon, my secretary unexpectedly asked me, do you know how many drafts you had? I replied, no, to which she responded, 72. I thought, wow. It took me two concentrated years of writing and many previous years of thinking and collecting ideas to write a book less than half the length of the Book of Mormon and far less meaningful and 72 drafts to do so. It reminds me of the statement of Hank Smith, someone with an experience is never at the mercy of someone with an opinion. Accordingly, no one can ever tell me that Joseph Smith, at age 23, trying to eke out a living on the edge of the frontier with essentially nothing but primitive writing skills, wrote this historical and doctrinal masterpiece in a single draft in 65 days, let alone in any time frame. It is beyond my rational belief. No wonder Emma Smith wrote, my belief is that the Book of Mormon is of divine authenticity. I have not the slightest doubt of it. I am satisfied that no man could have dictated the writing of the manuscripts unless he was inspired. 
For when acting as a scribe, your father would dictate to me hour after hour. And when returning after meals or after interruptions, he would at once begin where he had left off, without either seeing the manuscript or having any portion of it read to me. This was a usual thing for him to do. It would have been improbable that a learned man could do this, and for one so ignorant and unlearned as he was, it was simply impossible. That may seem insignificant to some, but to me, it is astounding. For 34 years as a lawyer, I regularly dictated to my secretary, day after day. As I did so, I was often interrupted by phone calls or questions. After such interruption, I would invariably, invariably turn to my secretary and say, where was I? But Joseph was not dictating or writing a new work. He was translating an ancient scriptural record by the power of God and therefore did not need to ask, where was I? These are but a few evidences that the Book of Mormon was not man-made. What positive evidence do we have, however, that it was divinely inspired? In other words, let's switch from defense to offense. If the critic wants to be credible, they must not only have the privilege of asking questions, but the responsibility of answering the ones we might give to them. First evidence, archaeology. Well, this is what I would call a lesser evidence. It is nevertheless an evidence. Reason can be used to bring about doubt, but it can also be used to bring about belief. Some years ago, a friend made a presentation to our family on the Book of Mormon. He commenced by reading these lines from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. There is no fear in him, let him not die, for he will live and laugh this hereafter. Clock strikes. Peace, count the clock, the clock has stricken thrice. At first these lines seemed not only insignificant, but irrelevant to anything in the Book of Mormon. Then my friend made his point. Shakespeare had made a mistake. There were simply no striking clocks at the time of Julius Caesar. There was, was an anachronism, something out of date, out of context, out of for decades, critics have placed their scholarly stethoscopes firmly against the Book of Mormon, anxiously listing for a striking clock, something out of date, out of context. But with the passage of time, their stethoscopes have encountered a deafening silence. Why? Because this book is not the work of man. It is the work of God. What then are some of those alleged striking clocks as it pertains to archeology span and what is the truth? Alleged striking clock number one, you know of, the existence of metal plates. For years, the world laughed at the idea of gold plates as a medium for record keeping. It was a favorite target for years of detractors. Surely, Joseph Smith must have thought, like the vast majority of the rest of the world, the ancient civilizations recorded their histories on papyrus or parchments, not metal plates. All the evidence seemed to support the critics. The argument seemed so convincing, so ironclad. Then, as you know, discoveries of ancient metal plates began to unfold, and the critic's myth was shattered. The plates of Emperor Darius I of Persia, written about 518 BC, composed of gold and silver, 
located in a stone box, were found in 1933 by a German archaeologist. They were written during the same time frame as the Book of Mormon and stored in a similar stone type box. Since then, numerous metal plates containing ancient writings have been discovered. Nonetheless, some critics will not concede the obvious. They now insist that the Book of Mormon is the wrong type of document to be written on metal plates. Specifically, they think it's too long for that day and age. Others are in the process of responding to that contention. But in terms of the general practice of writing on metal plates, this seeming anachronism has now become one more witness of the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Alleged striking clock number two, you know, cement in ancient America. For many years, critics argued that a striking clock was to be found in the Book of Mormon because of its reference to the use of cement by the ancient inhabitants of America. Archaeologists were certain that cement was not invented in the Americas until years after the recorded history of the Book of Mormon. One critic, a Christian minister, summarized the claim as follows. There is zero archaeological evidence that any kind of cement existed in the Americas prior to modern times. The Book of Mormon references to cement were simply contrary to the known scientific facts of the time. Joseph Smith, they alleged, had inserted something out of date, out of context, certain proof of his hoax. But then truth, as it always does, surfaced. And the day of reckoning came. Cement was discovered in the Americas dating to the same century when cement was reported to have been used by the Book of Mormon. President Heber J. Grant in the 1930s told of being ridiculed by a peer because he believed in the Book of Mormon which spoke of an ancient people who built houses of cement. Listen to President Grant's response at a general conference. That criticism does not affect my faith one particle. I read the Book of Mormon prayerfully and supplicated God for a testimony in my heart and soul of the divinity of it, and I have accepted it and believe it with all my heart. I said to my friend, if my children do not find cement houses, I expect that my grandchildren will. He then went on to say, now since that time, houses made of cement and massive structures of the same material have been uncovered in the Americas. He then told of the mention of his counselor, who visited the ancient site of Teotihuacan, Mexico, and had seen the cement mortar of the pyramids and cement drain pipes. Structural engineer David Hyman observed that cement discovered in Mexico from the first century AD is, quote, a fully developed product. Technology and the manufacturing of calcareous cements in middle America was equal to any in the world at the advent of the Christian era. Another seeming crisis had become one more confirmation of the Book of Mormon. Alleged striking clock number three, Alma as a man's name. For many years, critics claimed to have found another ticking clock. The Book of Mormon refers to two male prophets by the name of Alma. Alma was considered, as you know, a female Latin and Hebrew name, not a male name. In fact, one critic sarcastically wrote, quote, Alma is supposed to be a prophet of God and of Jewish ancestry in the Book of Mormon. In Hebrew, Alma means a betrothed virgin maiden, hardly a fitting name for a man. But the day of truth came. 
1961, a deed was found in Jerusalem dating to the early 2nd century AD. The deed was signed by Alma ben Yehuda, which means in Hebrew, Alma, the son of Judah. Joseph was either inspired once again, or a very, very lucky guesser. Some critics now claim that the earlier critics were wrong, that Alma's name did exist as a male name at the time of Joseph Smith. But in either case, they have confirmed that the Book of Mormon revealed a correct usage of the name of Alma. Alleged striking clock number four, Barley in pre-Columbia America. Barley is referred to in the Book of Mormon on multiple occasions. But for years, the critics were ruthless in their attack against this Book of Mormon claim. One such critic alleged that, quote, barley never grew in the New World before the white man brought it here. Another alleged that reference to barley was one of numerous, quote, verifiable blunders, unquote, found in the Book of Mormon. Then the shoe dropped. The year 1983 came, a nightmare for those critics. Barley was discovered in Hohokam Indian archaeological sites in Arizona, contrary to the unequivocal assertion of the critics that no barley existed in the Americas in pre-Columbian times. The Hohokam Indians believed, were believed to have existed between about 300 BC and 1450 AD, thus overlapping with Book of Mormon times, but predating any European migrations to the Americas. Subsequently, barley was found to be native in other U.S. states, as well as Mexico. Thus, another alleged striking clock myth was disposed of. Dr. John Lund tells of a student working on his Ph.D. in horticulture who came to him in the 70s and explained that he couldn't believe in the church anymore because he had learned the domesticated barley did not exist in Book of Mormon times. If only he had patiently endured a few more years, his dilemma would have resolved itself. And thus, one more casualty was added to the list of those who chose to set aside their faith in favor of limited knowledge of science. Alleged striking clock number five, names, places, and events not yet confirmed. With the demise of the foregoing arguments, the criti critics claim there are many items referred to in the Book of Mormon which have not yet been discovered with certainty in archaeological excavations, such as horses, cattle, steel, and the names of Nephite cities, and therefore conclude the Book of Mormon cannot be true, that all of these references are likewise anachronisms. One such critic wrote, quote, Anachronisms, horses, cattle, oxen, sheep, swine, goats, elephants, wheels, chariots, wheat, silk, steel, and iron did not exist in pre-Columbian America during <coughs> Book of Mormon times. <coughs> Why are these things mentioned in the Book of Mormon as being made available in the Americas between 2200 BC and 421 AD? My first thought was, how does he know? Have all archaeological remains from ancient America been uncovered? Hardly. What the critics fail to mention is that archaeology scholars have opined that only 2% or less, probably much less, 
of ancient American ruins have been excavated. George Stewart, a leading Maya scholar who worked for National Geographic for almost 40 years, did an interview in 2011 on National Geographic Live. In the course of his interview, he made the following revealing comment. And we hardly know anything really about the Maya, believed to have existed during a portion of Book of Mormon times. You know, there's almost 6,000 archaeological sites, and we've dug at 40 of them. That is less than 1%. Suppose for a moment I were to tell you that a man personally surveyed physically 2% of the geography of the United States, represented by the circle on the screen. And then he made the unequivocal assertion to you that there are no large lakes in the United States. There are no Everglades. There are no mountains above 10,000 feet. There are no redwood forests. There are no volcanoes. And there are no gold mines. Because in his 2% survey, he did not see any of such things. You would likely respond, how foolhardy for him to categorically state there were no such things when 98% of the United States had never even been seen by him. Likewise, how foolhardy to unequivocally claim that there were no horses, cattle, steel, and Nephite names in Book of Mormon lands and times when at least 98% of archaeology remains in ancient America have not yet been unearthed. Time and science are great allies of the Book of Mormon. In fact, they are our best friends. Like President Grant, we can trust the impression of the spirit we have received confirming the truth of this book. In due course, the earth will produce its archaeological evidences, and the truth will be verified. Second evidence besides archaeology are Bible prophecies. A number of years ago, someone asked me, Dad, if the Book of Mormon is such a critical witness of the Savior, why isn't the Book of Mormon prophesied of by name in the Bible? I responded, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world? Of course, he replied. Why then is Jesus Christ not prophesied of by name in the Old Testament? He replied, in essence, well, the Old Testament does not mention the name of Jesus Christ. I admit that. But it does prophesy him in such a way that any reasonable person should know it's referring to Jesus Christ. I responded, thank you. And so it is with the Book of Mormon. The Bible prophesies of its coming forth and its purpose, not by name, but by events and descriptions that are sufficiently clear and precise that honest seekers of truth who are familiar with the Book of Mormon can discern their fulfillment. What then are some of these prophecies? There are actually a number of Bible prophecies that refer to the Book of Mormon, its people, and their promised land. One which you're well familiar with is in Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick, or book, and write upon it for Judah, the Bible. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions, the Book of Mormon. And join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. These books are one in the Lord's hand as the prime purpose of each is to bear witness of Jesus Christ and his divinity. 
There are many other scriptures in the Book of Mormon that speak about, or in the Bible, that speak about the Book of Mormon, such as prophecies that a branch of Joseph, referring among others to Lehi and his family, would inherit a promised land, meaning the Americas, that Joseph's descendants would have a numerous posterity, the Nephite Lamanite civilization, that they would speak from the dust, the gold plates containing their history that were buried in the earth, that it would be given to one who was unlearned, Joseph Smith, that this book would open the eyes of the blind and the eyes of, and the ears of the deaf, which the Book of Mormon has certainly done, and that Christ would personally visit his sheep in the Americas. These are all descriptions of the Book of Mormon. Its people and their promised land is found in the Bible. Third evidence, the book's divine eloquence. The Book of Mormon speaks with a divine language and eloquence that rings of divinity, that lifts us up and inspires each of us to be a better person. It invites us to ponder many of its phrases, perhaps even to memorize them, or highlight them in our scriptures, or place them on a mirror or refrigerator door. These phrases become our companion and friend in time of need of reflection. These phrases are forged from the language of the Spirit. They are messages with a heartbeat, messages that live and breathe and inspire. The Book of Mormon is filled with such golden nuggets, each a divine masterpiece in its own right. On this screen are some inspired masterpieces from the Book of Mormon that answer questions of the soul and give direction in life. Men are that they might have joy. What a simple description of the purpose of life. Or feast upon the words of Christ, for behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things that ye should do. At first blush, I thought, how can the scriptures tell me all things I should do? Can they tell me who I should marry or what career I should pursue? Then I realize that they do, in fact, and tell me all things I should do in two important ways. First, they teach me correct principles that I can comply, apply not only in general, but in specific situations. And second, the scriptures invite the spirit into my life that helps me apply, apply these principles in my, to meet my specific needs. Or another one, wickedness never was happiness. Wouldn't that solve a lot of problems in the world today if people truly believe that? I think most of us here today would be happy if in a lifetime we had two or three memorable phrases that truly touched, resonated with and touched our family and friends. The burning question then becomes, how did Joseph Smith at age 23, who lacked formal education and could not write a coherent letter as attested to by his wife, produce this incredible list of memorable phrases, phrases and sage counsel in approximately 65 working days? The answer, he didn't. The Lord did. Fourth evidence, the divine doctrine. For me, this is the greatest evidence, separate and apart from the Spirit. At some point, the honest searcher for truth must ask, where did Joseph Smith get the deep and expansive doctrine found in the Book of Mormon? Much of which is contrary to or clarifies the religious beliefs of his time. For example, where did he get the stunning sermon on faith in Alma 32, where he compares faith to a seed? 
or Nephi's concise and powerful message on the doctrine of Christ in 2 Nephi 31 and 32, or King Benjamin's incomparable sermon on the atonement, the Savior's atonement in Mosiah 2 to 5, or Moroni's concluding chapter on the causal connection between perfection and the atonement of Jesus Christ. How did this inexperienced, uneducated young man miraculously pen these compelling sermons composed of profound doctrinal truths page after page? For my own benefit, I have made a list of over 25 doctrines that the Book of Mormon clarifies or restores that have become lost or mystified because of the plain and precious truths removed from the Bible. I list but just three for your consideration. On one side of the screen is confusion in some of the Christian world. On the right side, clarifications made by the Book of Mormon. On the left side, a misunderstanding of the world. The fall was a tragic step backwards. Contrary to that common universal belief, the Book of Mormon tells us if there had been no fall, Adam and Eve would have remained in a state of innocence, meaning spiritual neutral. They could not have gone forward spiritually and had no children. Second misconception in the world, man cannot become like God. The Book of Mormon, through the grace of Christ, we may be perfect in Christ. Through the grace of God, we may be perfect in Christ. The Savior's atonement not only cleanses us, but it can also perfect us. Third misunderstanding, churches need not be named after Christ, but may be, may, may be named after the reformers, such as Lutherans and Calvinists, or procedures, such as Baptists, or clergy, such as Presbyterians. Yet the Book of Mormon tells us clearly, and how be up my church, save it be called in my name. For if a church be called in Moses' name, then it be Moses' church. Or if it be called in the name of a man, then it be the church of a man. But if it be called in my name, that it is my church, if it so be, they are built upon my gospel. If these doctrinal truths were so easy to discover and articulate, why hadn't others in the 1800 years following Christ's ministry done so? Because it was not brilliance, it was revelation that was the source of these teachings. Fifth evidence, the testimony of the 11 witnesses. As a further witness of the authenticity of the Book of Mormon, we have the testimony of at least 11 people in addition to Joseph Smith, eight of whom handled the plates and three of whom saw the plates and heard an angel bear witness of their divine origin. We have about 200 historical statements collaborating, corroborating the integrity of these men and confirming their ongoing testimony until the day of their deaths. About eight to 10 of these statements might be what you would call negative. That is a ratio of 19 positive to one negative. To put this in perspective, suppose you are the judge in an auto accident case and there are 20 witnesses. Further suppose that 19 of the witnesses are consistent in their testimonies as to how the accident occurred, while one, just one, had a different perspective. Absent other circumstances as the judge, whom would you believe? For the sake of time, I cite but one such statement by David Whitmer, one of the three witnesses. After he learned it had been reported in two encyclopedias that he had denied his testimony of the Book of Mormon, one of these eight to ten negative statements, he responded with this unequivocal statement. 
It is recorded in the American Encyclopedia and the Encyclopedia Britannica that I, David Whitner, have denied my testimony as one of the three witnesses to the divinity of the Book of Mormon, and that two other witnesses, Oliver Cowdery and Martin Harris, denied their testimony to that book. I will say once more to all mankind that I have never at any time denied that testimony or any part thereof. I also testify to the world that neither Oliver Cowdery nor Martin Harris ever at any time denied their testimony. They both died affirming the truth of the divine authenticity of the Book of Mormon. One is inevitably led to the conclusion that the testimony of the loving witnesses, often born under the most difficult of circumstances, are compelling, even irrefutable evidence of the divine origin of the Book of Mormon. And the sixth and last evidence, the witness of the Spirit. As wonderful the foregoing evidences are, there is none more certain or more sure than that of the Spirit. It is the witness of all witnesses, the evidence of all evidences. Moroni confirmed this truth. And when you shall receive these things, I would exhort you that you would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if he shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost, and by the power of the Holy Ghost you may know the truth of all things. Hopefully we will never underestimate the power of that promise. President Boyd K. Packer once told of two frivolous girls chattering through a great museum, and then flippantly remarking as they left the building that it hadn't impressed them very much. One of the doorkeepers standing by commented to them, young ladies, this museum is not on trial here today. Its quality cannot be contested. You are the ones who are on trial. And so it is with the Book of Mormon. It is not on trial. Its divinity cannot be contested by the honest in heart. It is we who are on trial to see if we will read it with a sincere heart and real intent to discover its truth. I have a friend who is extremely bright who left the church because it could not answer his intellectual questions. He searched for another church that might do so, but he searched in vain. So he decided to study the church once again. He wrote in a letter to me the following. One day while reading the Book of Mormon in my room, I paused and knelt down and gave a heartfelt prayer and felt resoundingly that Heavenly Father whispered to my spirit that the church and the Book of Mormon were definitely true. My three-and-a-half-year period of reinvesting the church, reinvestigating the church led me back wholeheartedly and convincingly to its truthfulness. He then added this very significant addition. The primary factor in helping me gain a spiritual testimony of the Book of Mormon was that I changed my focus or criterion on what would make it true for me. Initially, I wanted the Book of Mormon to be proven to me historically, geographically, linguistically and culturally. But when I changed my focus to what it teaches about the gospel of Jesus Christ and his saving mission, I began to gain a testimony of its truthfulness. Seeking after scientific proof for the Book of Mormon had shackled, bound, and blinded me. But seeking after spiritual enlightenment empowered me to be set free to receive the light and testimony of its beauty and truthfulness. As a boy of about 15 or 16, I read the account of the 2000 Sons of Helaman. The story had a particular appeal to me as a young boy.
I marveled at their bravery and the Lord's protecting hand. Then a voice came to my mind, not an audible one, but a discernible one. That story is true. Since then, other witnesses have come. I add my witness to that of many others, that the Book of Mormon is a divine origin, that it is God's crowning witness of the divinity of Jesus Christ, the prophetic calling of Joseph Smith, and the absolute truth of this church. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Stand right by me. Yeah, answer what don't you want. Oh, you gave several quotes from Emma Smith. Is there one force, one source for these? Check with Scott afterwards. He has all the sources yeah. for those things. The Lord Moroni and Joseph stressed that the Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the everlasting gospel. Does it? Oh, that's a good question. And uh, of course, it doesn't have all of the temple ordinances in it, but it does make this statement when talking about the doctrine of Christ in 2 Nephi 31 and 32. It does talk about faith, repentance, baptism, the Holy Ghost, and then sometimes we say, and endure to the end. But that's not the way it reads and feasting upon the words of Christ and endure to the end. And so I think it <clears throat> explains to us how we get the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is by taking not only what it teaches us, but also what the prophets teach us, which are feasting upon the words of Christ. So I think you have to consider that in. Is that those, are not, those are the two more I just got. Okay. What ultimately inspired you to pursue this study and, and writing of a subsequent book? Well, I'd always loved the Book of Mormon, and I had seen all these statements by the critics. And uh, I, the, the report that Scott gave was so uh, magnificent. I want you to know that. And I'm so grateful that we have people who address some of these issues that uh, I wanted to address some of them this book that I wrote, and I was hopeful that some of them would respond to the critics' statements, but some of them also would be uh, offensive positions. And you think about, uh, it's very difficult for the critics to respond to the doctrine that Joseph Smith produced. You know, how did he come up with not a few verses? The, the Bible has some great verses on the atonement, but they're verses. The Book of Mormon has entire sermons on the atonement of Jesus Christ. How did he come up with all of that? You know, how, how do you respond to that if you're a critic? Or how do you respond to the divine eloquence? I bet there's a hundred statements you'd put on your refrigerator door. Age 23, how many, you know, qualified statements were you putting on the refrigerator door at age 23? You know, or the Bible prophecies, or the witnesses, or the spirit, those are all wonderful witnesses to me of the Book of Mormon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so very much. much. Thank you.